Welcome to the Pogel Podcast. The Pogel Podcast is a new conversation from the Pogel Project that celebrates innovative educators both in and out of the classroom. You will hear about what inspired them to become teachers and how the practice of student-centered education transformed their classrooms and improved outcomes for their students. Learn how they're innovating outside of the classroom as well. Join us as we think out loud with Pogel educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century. Our guest today is Dr. Patrick J.P. Brown, who is the Associate Professor of Health Sciences at East Tennessee State University's College of Public Health. Dr. Brown is also the Chief Operating Officer at ETSU's Faculty Senate, as well as a fellow in the Center for Teaching Excellence. Dr. Brown is from Clinton, Tennessee, which is a small community in the Appalachian foothills. He received his Bachelor of Science in Biology from the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, and his PhD in Cellular Biology from the University of Georgia. After nearly five years as a research scientist with the Bell Baruch Marine Institute of the University of South Carolina, he became an assistant professor of biology at King College, now University, in Bristol, Tennessee. It was while at King that he first became exposed to Pogel through one of the early three-day workshops at Guilford College. He joined the faculty of the Department of Sciences at East Tennessee State University in 2011, and he has written journal articles and book chapters about Pogel and is the author of Anatomy and Physiology, A Guided Inquiry. He is married to fellow Pogel practitioner Dr. Stacy Brown and has three boys, Zeke, Nate, and Nico. Patrick and Wayne, thank you very much for being here today. And Wayne, I will now pass the baton over to you. So Patrick, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now you're located down in Johnson City, Tennessee. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Correct. I'm way up in the northeast corner, kind of where Tennessee, Virginia, and North Carolina all come together in the southern Appalachian Highlands. Ah, uh, right. So I, I actually have never been to that part of Tennessee, but I did spend about eight years in Blacksburg, Virginia at Virginia Tech, so I'm assuming that it's fairly similar. Yeah, it's just like an hour and 45, two hours up the road. Yeah, it's not far at all, not far at all. So you're also a native Tennessean? I am, I was born in Morristown, Tennessee and raised in Clinton, Tennessee, which um, a lot of people haven't heard of, but uh, it was kind of famous for being the site of the first uh, desegregated public high school in the South following Brown v. Board. So my dad, so a lot of people think about, about Little Rock, but actually that was um, after Clinton High School. So my dad was actually in school at Clinton High School uh, when it desegregated. Oh, wow. And during his junior or senior year, um, the Ku Klux Klan actually blew it up with dynamite, blew the high school up. Wow. Yeah. If you look up the desegregation of Clinton High School, you can you can Google it or look it up on Wiki and look, learn about the Clinton Twelve. Um, it was the twelve young people who desegregated that high school back in the mid fifties. Wow! So that's I, that's one of our biggest claims to fame. And we were originally named after Aaron Burr, um, so my town was originally Burrville. Uh, and it wasn't him shooting Alexander Hamilton that caused them to change the name. It was after he was charged with treason for trying to carve out a nation out of the the, the land from the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and so it was renamed after um, George Clinton, who's a senator from New York, another senator from New York. Well, that, that, that's okay with me because the H, my middle initial, actually is Hamilton. Oh, nice. And, and my aunt thinks that she actually, at, at one time, there's a connection. It's not direct, but it's there. So Aaron Burr is not a... 
not a friend of our family. Yeah. Yeah. We're not, <laughs> we're not fond of him. So we changed the whole town's name. Okay. So Tennessee as a native Tennessean, when I think of Tennessee, I think about music. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just the first thing that comes to mind. And I think about blues down in Memphis and rock and roll with Elvis and then country music up in Nashville. So in that spectrum of, of music, what, where do you lean? Actually, none of it. Uh, <laughs> that was an answer. Yes. <laughs> so, so I'm not a big fan of uh, not a big fan of commercial country music. Although uh, I do enjoy like bluegrass and old time, like okay. more traditional, um, traditional kind of mountain music. Yeah. I'm an hour away from the Carter family fold, um, but I'm I'm more of a casual fan. I'm not like a diehard get into the weeds. But Ricky Skaggs periodically comes to my university um and so next time he comes i'll go see him um but really i grew up you know in the uh in the 80s was in high school uh during the early to mid 90s and so i really kind of came of age with grunge music and alternative rock music so like in high school some of my favorite we had a favorite local band called the judy bats um but i was really i was way more into into rock and alternative rock and downright weird stuff like the violent films and things like that growing up. Um, and now I have a teenage son, so I endure um, commercial pop music. There you go. Well, yeah, it's, it's strange how influences happen. And uh, my grandson is actually learning to play guitar. And, um, you know, I, I, I love the blues. Uh, been playing blues for a long, long time. And the music he wants to play is heavy metal. <laughs> and I'm supposed to be his guitar teacher, so I know nothing about it. And so I, I'm learning. <laughs> Power chords and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but my, now, my- I will say, as far as blues go, when I was, so I was a bit of a musician in high school. I played classical percussion, um, you know, played the timpani. Uh, and when I was uh, between my sophomore and junior years of high school, I was invited to attend the Tennessee Governor's School for the Arts. And I was there to play timpani in the orchestra but my roommate was there to sing in the choir but he was also a very talented self-taught guitarist and when I walked into the room he was playing Stevie Ray Vaughan um, on his little he had a he had a Fender Stratocaster and a little bitty tiny amp and he was just sitting there shredding note for note with Stevie Ray Um, so I will say I'm a massive Stevie Ray Vaughan fan and have been guilty of staying up way too late in the evening watching archival YouTube videos of Stevie Ray I remember one concert, he this has nothing to do with teaching, but it was so awesome. Um, he was playing a solo and he broke a string on his guitar. So he kept playing the solo on the other five strings. He transposed yeah. the solo to be able to just use the five remaining strings. And then a technician comes in with another guitar. And as the technician unstraps his guitar he's playing brings the other guitar around he seamlessly reaches up and grabs the fretboard of the other guitar and starts playing on it on all six strings and another technician buttoning into it you should look that up man it is it is one of the most remarkable pieces of musicianship i've ever seen in my life oh well that sounds fantastic this well the story that i hear and you know maybe we should just talk about music the rest of the time but the story i've heard about him is he had these really thick strings and he played so hard and heavy and, and he actually ripped the calluses off his fingers during a show he went backstage super glued the calluses back on and came back on for the next set. So uh, uh, that's dedication. I'm not surprised to hear that at all. That's dedication. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Pogel. I heard you say in a talk that Pogel's, Pogel's a little weird. 
Uh, I think those were your, your words. And I've heard it before from my colleagues. They describe what I do and say, yeah, it's, it's kind of neat, but it's kind of weird. And it made me think, well, is Pogel weird or are Pogel practitioners weird? So uh, I'm asking this of all <laughs> the practitioners. I know yeah. who's going to be listening to this. Well, you know what's happening? They're coming next then. So on a scale of one to 10, with one being not very weird and 10 being over the top, how weird are you? Oh, brother, I'm a solid 12. <laughs> you should look at my end of semester evaluations. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm spotting a 10 because so far I think we're averaging around an 8. So, uh, but but you, you've helped with that average. No two ways Fantastic. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so you're a biologist and a health scientist. Is that a fair Correct. statement? Okay, when did you decide that teaching was something that you really wanted to do. I, we start out in undergraduate. I know I started out, I wanted to be a physicist. That lasted a semester. Then I, then I said, I want to become a chemist. But it took me a long time to get to the point where I say, hey, I really want to teach. Uh, when did that happen for you? Well, I mean, there's always been a little bit of a bug uh, in the back of my brain because I come from a family of teachers. Um, so my mom was a special educator. I retired after almost 40 years in special education. My sister, my older sister, is a special educator. My dad uh, went to school to study teaching. Uh, when he got back from Vietnam, he went on the GI Bill, but kind of family matters intervened, and he had to he had to leave school to go help take care of some relatives on a farm in Dandridge, Tennessee, and then he just never never ended up going back, but he wanted to do that. And actually, later in his career, uh, he was an electrician for a lot of years, and then later in his career, when he got into management, the, his favorite thing to do was training. And so even though when I think of your dad and his career as a businessman, he was still at heart a teacher. So I've kind of I come from that background. And when I started college, my goal uh, was to go into pharma. Like I wanted to do natural products. I didn't know the name for it at the time, but that movie Medicine Man with Sean Connery, where he goes out in the jungle and he finds mm -hmm. plants that cure cancer. I wanted to be that guy. Yeah. So my initial plan was to study botany and chemistry. Then I took Gen Chem and was like, oh, uh, maybe, maybe I'm not going to make a career out of this because <laughs> <laughs> I struggled hard for that B. I'm real proud of that B I got in Gen Chem back in 1994. Uh, so I shifted just to, just to the biology side. But I loved learning about life and it was the, the learning part that was, that was the funnest for me and like how I ended up in graduate school is a long story in and of itself. But, uh, turns out if you don't go to cellular biology class, but five times in a semester, you don't make a very good grade. And being as how cellular biology was a re required course for my bachelor's in biology degree, I couldn't graduate with a D in it, which is what I made the first time I took it. Because like I said, I literally showed up maybe five to six times the whole semester. Just I showed up the first day and I took the tests and that was it. Bad plan. Uh, so for anybody with children going to college or if you're in college, don't do that. That's a bad idea. But what happened was I had to delay graduation so I could take cell in the summer because I had to have that. I had to have at least a C plus in that class to graduate or a C. We didn't do plus minus. I had to have a C to graduate. And I went back and fell in love with it. My professor, Dr. Maurice Edwards, was just just he was exactly what you would expect of a college biology professor gray hair kind of thinning on top but in a ponytail in the back um small lean full of energy it was just a delightful man and really 
kind of helped me fall in love with the field of cellular biology. And I had also, during the time leading up to retaking that class, met a professor at UGA who studied algae. And that was going to be my jam because I, I was like, you know, algae are going to be the thing. We can grow them in a laboratory. We can do all sorts of neat things with them. And right now, you know, there's, there's people making biofuels out of algae. There's lots of neat research still going on, even though I don't do it anymore. So I went to grad school, but to pay for it, as you know, one of the things you do is a teaching assistantship. And the Department of Cellular Biology kind of owned the anatomy and physiology course, the intro A&P course at, at the University of Georgia. And so one of the things I had to do was learn human A&P. I'd never taken a human anatomy class. I took vertebrate anatomy. I studied cats and sharks and salamanders. And so I had to learn the human anatomy. And that was my first experience kind of being in front of a classroom. And that really got me hooked on it. I was like, okay, the science is fun and I enjoy doing the science, but being in front of a classroom and helping people learn and seeing like you know you know what I'm talking about when you see that light go off inside their head you see that look on their face that now I get it you see those pieces click into into place and I have words for that now you know I can talk about them constructing knowledge and integrating new concepts into existing schema and I hang out with educational psychologists now and I have words for these things but at the time it was just that phenomenon that seeing those pieces click into place in the eyes of people who are often older than me. Uh, when I started as a TA, you know, if you're low on the totem pole, you get stuck with night labs. Mm-hmm. So I was a teaching assistant for these Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, six to nine, 6 PM to 9 PM labs. But being 22 years old and working with people who were, often middle-aged and coming back for a second career and being able to facilitate that at that young age just really lit a fire under me. So I kind of switched tracks away. I still did all the research stuff and things, but I was fortunate to be mentored by my major professor, Mark Farmer, Dr. Marshall Darley, who is since retired, but he had left research science to go into being full-time educator and and doing scholarship of teaching and learning stuff. Uh, And I was also mentored by Dr. Marcus Fetchheimer, who is still at Georgia, and he's a Josiah Meggs teaching scholar there, which is kind of the the highest honor one can get for being a classroom educator. You know, it's a permanent elevation in status that, that he'll have, um, you know, he, he's, that's part of his title now. So I was fortunate to be able to be mentored by some of these just world-class educators. And so that really got me on the track to deciding that being a teacher and teaching at a college level was really what I wanted to do with my life. And that was a really long answer for not a very long question. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think, I, I think it's a common experience. I, I, I certainly uh, think one of the, the best things that I ever did was to go to University of Illinois out of undergraduate school. And they immediately threw me in a classroom, in a recitation section, not just a lab, but I was a graduate student teaching in a classroom. And I had no idea what I was doing at first and maybe still don't, but uh, I really just enjoyed the experience and it was, it was great to be thrown into that. A little terrifying too. So how did you get involved with Pogel? When did you start using Pogel activities and how did that happen? So when I first, uh, so right out, out of graduate school, I worked as a research scientist for um, a little over four years and I got to do some adjunct stuff here and there. And when I did, I used a traditional didactic approach where I made slides and I lectured and we would do discussions. So, you know, I got to do some, some graduate classes at the College of Charleston and 
you know, it was the same, same old, same old. And then I finally got a full-time teaching gig at uh, what was then called King College in Bristol, Tennessee. It's now King University. And there I was 25% of the biology department. So I had to teach a bunch of stuff all at once. And I was teaching introductory anatomy and physiology. This was in fall of 2007. And I had finished my first semester and I had gotten my reviews back from the students and they all liked me. They all thought I was doing a pretty good job, but every time I gave them uh, any kind of assessment that required higher order cognitive skills stuff from up towards the top of blooms, they were terrible at it. And I came home and I was complaining to Dr. Mrs. Brown, who is a, um, was a chemistry professor. Now she's a professor of pharmaceutical sciences at the Gatton College of Pharmacy. And I was like, yeah, but she had been doing, she had taught general chemistry and instrumental analysis and analytical, some other stuff and things at uh, the Citadel, the military college of South Carolina while we were living there. And I was talking about how every time I gave them some sort of higher order cognitive task, they were, they failed miserably at it. And I had to come up with some other assessment, you know, so I didn't just fail the whole class. And she was like, well, have you ever actually asked them to do those things in the classroom? I'm like, no. <laughs> She's like, have you ever given them practice? Have you ever taught them how to actually do critical thinking or problem solving, et cetera? And I said, no. And she said, well, listen, I learned about this new method that I've been using at, uh, I learned about this at an ACS regional meeting. It's called Pogel. And they do these summer workshops and they're free to attend. This was back in 2000. So this would have been summer of 2008 at this point. Um, she was like, they're free to attend. I think you're going to really like them. And so I went to a three-day workshop at uh, Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. And from then on, I was hooked. I knew that this was the solution to my problem of the students not being able to do some of these you know, what I now would call process skills, that now I have a way to scaffold that and help them learn how to do these things. So it was really, I, I, I owe it all to Dr. Stacy Brown, who's the one who first told me that Pogel was a thing. So yay, the okay. chemists. So in January, you would say we should listen to our wives. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. There you go. Well, when you started to use Pogel, was it a smooth transition? Because I know for me, I, I had a couple of false starts and I, I said, oh, I'm not very good at this. I'll just go back and talk because I can talk. Did you, and was there at a time when you convinced yourself, wow, this is really working? Uh, sort of an aha moment. Yeah. So like a lot of people, that first, first semester was rough. Um, and then you know, part of the issue was that in 2008, there were no anatomy and physiology activities. So if I wanted to do Pogel, I had to write the activities myself. Yeah. Um, and so that first semester, it, fortunately, I was forewarned. So when I did my three-day workshop, uh, you know, I was mentored by some really excellent folks in the Southeast region. And I don't remember who it was. I want to say it was Gail Webster. But somebody said to us, the, that group of, of people attending that workshop, look, your first semester, this might not go so well. Let your supervisor know, tell your chair, tell your dean, tell whomever that you're doing this and this, this thing works. There's evidence that this is a practice that will result in deeper learning for your students, but you're a novice at it and, and 
it's new to the students and your student evaluations may not be so good. And in fact, they weren't that first semester. Normally I had got real high marks because I'm a big loud hillbilly who likes to do dad jokes and puns and things like that. Yeah. I'm very at ease in front of other people. I like being the center of attention. And so when I was lecturing, it was, it was the Patrick shows, you know, I had a good time. They had a good time. They didn't learn much, but they had a good time. And um, so, so it was a little bit rocky, but once I learned to sell it to the students, so after that first semester, the very first day of class, um, those uh, folks listening, if anybody who's been to a, a Pogel, like a regional meeting or any kind of intro to Pogel workshop, you've probably done the parallelogram activity where students or the participants are told how to do something. But of course, it's a task that without prior scaffolding and prior knowledge, you can't adequately do all by yourself. And so I created something similar to that where I would give them this task and they would have to do things like, you know, write um, a Roman numeral that is equal to the number of players that can be on a football field at once and write a capital Greek letter. You know, I picked things like sports fans would know that there's 11 people on a side in football, but maybe they didn't, hadn't done Roman numerals in a while. Mm -hmm. And I would use a Greek letter because sometimes we had students in Greek letter societies who would know what a capital Delta looked like. Um, and so I, I would pull in all these things and I would do a, a very similar experience. It took about 20 minutes out of the first day of class. But at that point, you could start to see they, they would buy in. And so once I yeah. really started selling it, that kind of helped. Um, and then when I started becoming more effective as a Pogel facilitator, I was, uh, I was able to start seeing, you know, like I talked about earlier, that light that comes on when people start to place things together. You know, I would see them actually doing these, these tasks the, the critical thinking, the problem solving, the information processing, teamwork and communication, and all these targeted process skills that I was really trying hard to get them to do. I started seeing them do it. And the first time I had a student, and, and this was this was maybe the second or third semester I was using Pogel, and you know, a student worked through the inductive reasoning process to form, they were able to construct this concept. And then I asked them a question to apply it and they did it. And I was like, now, how do you know to do it? And they went back to their data and they showed the evidence for their conclusion. And I asked them, I was so excited, you know, I'm hunkered down. You can picture it, you're in a classroom, the students are gathered around a table and I'm hunkered, you know, kind of squatting down, leaning over the table. And I was like, okay, I'll make up a name. We'll say her name was Amanda. I was like, Amanda, how many times have you been told in high school and so far in college that critical thinking is important? She was like, oh, I don't know, Dr. Brown, a lot of times. I was like, great. Um, how many times has anybody ever told you what the hell that means? And she was like, I never, I actually don't know what it means. And so I explained to her about, you know, forming conclusion based on evidence and being able to back up your conclusion based on that evidence and being able to justify that this evidence is good evidence and, you know, all the things that go into critical thinking. And she just got this big, her eyes got wide and it finally clicked into place that, okay, this is this thing that they've wanted me to do all these years. So I, the GIL part of Pogel is fantastic. Um, yeah. And I don't think there's a, I am a diehard constructivist now. When it comes to to my teaching, I, I approach almost everything um, from that kind of constructivist framework. But that PO part, right, that that seeing those students go from 
having, you know, being novices at some of those process skills and gaining experience and becoming, progressing toward mastery in them. It's just so rewarding. So it's probably that first time I saw somebody get it, that she was doing critical thinking. That's the biggest aha moment. Yeah. And now uh, I get to have them all the time. It's fantastic. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so you do educational research primarily focusing on active learning strategies, right? Mm -hmm. Not just Pogol, but, but any active learning strategy. Um, I think we would both agree that in an active learning environment, it's just so much more fun than lecturing. I mean, it, it's just the experience and, and, uh, of being in the classroom while things are happening and, and you get to observe things. But on the other end of that, there are these performance issues of, you know, you really want your students to do well and you want them to excel in critical thinking and be able to uh, deal with the content that you're trying to teach them. What should instructors be looking for in their experiences to validate the use of active learning that this really is a, a, a superior approach for, for their students? So well, I mean, one of the things you're going to see is you're going to be able to ask your students harder questions and they're going to be able to answer them in a much more in a sense that demonstrates a more sophisticated understanding of the concepts in the class so when you go from struggling to get your students to to perform like basic recall tasks just like you know bottom of blooms knowledge and understanding when you go from that to casually like i'll do these little mini case studies in my anatomy and physiology class where i'll just throw up a, a quick you know one paragraph case presentation and um, I'll give them some questions, some prompts, and have them pair. You know, it's like a little think, pair, share kind of thing. And I'll have them together and put their heads together. The kinds of responses that I get now after training them to do those kinds of sophisticated cognitive tasks are much more sophisticated than the kinds of questions I was getting earlier on when I would ask, or the kinds of answers I was getting, sorry, uh, earlier on when I was asking similar questions. So, that, I mean, that's one thing you're going to see. Um, you're going to see students more spontaneously engaging in this kind of more difficult higher order thinking. Um, and because of the, you know, the, the great thing about student-centered learning is that you get, the learning's taking place right in front of you. You get to watch it. Um, people talk about a flipped classroom and I'm, I'm not using that, but the learning is flipped in that in the past, we would tell our students a bunch of things and then we would send them home with homework. And that's where the learning would actually happen. That's where they're gonna struggle with concepts and try to apply them. And the learning was happening on their own, without peers, without their instructor, as they had fewer resources. And so it was more frustrating. And it was the struggle was happening without the resources to help the student, you know, move past that. And it might have been you, Wayne, at a at a PM that said one of the nice things about Pogel is that the struggle is baked right in. I don't know. I might have said that. That's something I would have said. I certainly have said that I thought Pogo was naturally flipped. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so we, we bake that struggle in when they have those resources. Uh, you know, they have the students, their, their peers with them. I'm there to help if the whole group of people are, have a hurdle. You know, I can come in and do that obnoxious thing that we do where we answer their questions with more questions. Um, which again, they hate, but that's how we learn, right? Yeah. So in, instead of just like, my favorite question is, is this right? And I tell them from day one, I'm never gonna answer that question with a yes or no. Uh, I'm gonna turn it right back and ask you, well, is it right? And ask them how they know and things like that. 
but but that's 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 the other thing you're going to be able to see once you start using these active learning strategies is that the learning is not happening away from you the learning is happening right in front of your face right so i would say that that the attitude towards pogel among my my colleagues was largely indifference they didn't mind that i was using it that's fine even if they thought it might be a little weird but they weren't really ready to try to venture into the waters. Why do you think there is a good deal of resistance to active learning if the data supports its use, uh, its effectiveness, and we have so much satisfaction doing it? So that was actually pretty baffling to me early on, because um, especially since you know the majority of Pogol practitioners still are in STEM fields. And so you would think we would value evidence and like here's this mountain of evidence that indicates that and not just Pogel but um, you know there was that great paper in PNAS um, I think it was in 2016 that there was this huge meta-analysis of all these different active learning strategies and you know the the take-home of uh, this kind of like the Mike Trot paper because um, the take-home was that it, it's uniformly better and a matter of fact um, the author of that paper whose name is escaping me right now Scott Freeman yeah, Scott Freeman and colleagues in PNAS. But my the, the thing that really rocked my world was when he said that using a traditional lecture as a control group when you're evaluating the efficacy of an active learning strategy is unethical. It's akin to giving somebody with a disease a placebo oh. instead of the current recommended treatment when you are evaluating a new treatment. And I was like, wow, that's hardcore first uh, yeah. uh, but second dang that's okay um, but the thing is it's easy and I'm not throwing shade at any of my colleagues who do this because I'll admit it to myself it's not it, it's a lot less work for me to take my binder of notes that I've made on the on the book and stand up in front and tell them these things I mean I'm passionate about my field I, I think the human body is a uh, is a magnificent machine and understanding how the components interact with one another and how they work and understanding the basis of disease. Like it's fascinating and I love it. And I could stand up there and talk to them all day long and that would be much less work. Um, and not just like labor, but cognitive, yeah. right? It's, it's just, it's, it's a lot of work. And I think a lot of people don't want to invest the amount of effort it would take, especially up front to do something that, I will fully tell them it's going to take you a couple of years to get good at. And I think that's a big part of it. It's just, it, we are, we're humans. And if we're comfortable doing something, it's not in our nature as people to shift years and do something that the people who do it are telling us, yeah, it's a lot of work. You're going to have to do a lot of work ahead of time. And once you get in the classroom, it's, you're not in control. You're not in total control anymore. Right? You're, you're, you're giving away some of that control and putting that, that onus onto the students. And that means a lot more finesse in managing the classroom. It's not just standing up front and being the center of attention, which I will admit I love, but now you're, you're shifting that focus away from yourself and onto the students. And that's just something that's more difficult to manage. So I think it's just that hill you got to climb to get there. Mm -hmm. That's the big hurdle. The, the other thing, and I find this fascinating, is that people who are in 
laboratory science. When it comes to science, they demand evidence and they will accept evidence as produced through experimentation. Uh, but when it comes to the social science of, of teaching and learning and the scholarship of teaching and learning, there is a tendency to dismiss it because it's not real science. Uh, but there's also a reliance on anecdote. Um, you know, some people will say, well, I have this student who went on to go to medical school and I have this student who went on and did these amazing things, yeah. right? They'll take these, these little anecdotes and not look at the body. Um, or you'll have people who only teach junior and senior level classes. And the way things are now, we still have this terrible situation where introductory classes are these gatekeeping classes, right? They're there to weed out those who can't do, when in fact, a lot of those who get weeded out can do, they just need help. Yeah. And so by the time, you know, health sciences and biology, I know it's true in chemistry and physics, um, by the time students get to be a junior, they, they're going to be successful, doesn't matter what we do. Um, you know, they figured, out, they figured it out, or, or they know how to teach themselves. They know they have the skills, they already have those skills. Um, and the ones who didn't come in with the skills they need to be successful are left behind. So, and, and I think the fact that, well, I don't need to do this because my students do fine. And I think that's a systemic problem in higher ed. And this is something that we talk a lot about, or I talk a lot about with my colleagues, is that often the people who are the most senior and have the most experience are rewarded with that with smaller upper level classes, which is great. But a lot of times those are the people you really want in front of those large enrollment introductory courses. And, you know, we've, we've got this, this system set up where getting into those introductory courses where you get the, the students kind of hooked on that discipline or that field or whatever it is, um, is punishment. And that's where you put the newest people. That's where you put the people who are lowest on the totem pole in seniority. And not that they can't be good educators, but that a lot of times managing, especially those larger classrooms, is something that does take a little bit more experience. And so I really wish we had some way to reward senior faculty for being willing to uh, engage in those introductory courses. Uh, we're always in Pogo, we're focused on the students, obviously. We're student-centered, but it's a two-way street. How would you say using Pogel has affected you, not only as an educator, but as a human being? So one of the, one of the greatest rewards I've gotten through using Pogel is the interaction with the people who taught me how to do it and with the folks who continue to help me become you know, a better practitioner and a better educator. I mentioned earlier, I had the good fortune to be mentored early on by some, some just fantastic educators here uh, in the Southeast region of the country, um, you know, Andy Brissett and Gail Webster, Rob Whitnell, Sally Honeycutt, and uh, Suzanne Reuter, with whom I've actually just recently published a paper. Andy and Suzanne put together the Pogel facilitator training workshop, and I've actually not only participated in that, but gone back and been a facilitator in training with them. Uh, so, you know, the people, like the fact that when Marcy Dubroff graduated uh, recently, I got invited to her virtual uh, graduation party <laughs> and just the, the wonderful interactions I've had with so many. I'm like, I just can't, we'd be here all day if I listed all of the people um, with whom I've been able to form relationships. I could tell stories, um, but 
it, so, so the number one thing that I have gained from my involvement with Pogel is the working with the other people who were involved um, with Pogel. The other reward I've gotten is I get to know my students a lot better. You know, I, my class is not considered, it probably wouldn't be considered large enrollment at a place like Virginia Commonwealth or UGA or somewhat, but this semester I'm going to have up to 216 students in my anatomy and physiology one class. And I would venture to say there are very few people who teach that number of students at once who get to know them as well as I do. And part of that, to be fair, is because I teach my own labs. Uh, we don't use graduate students. All the labs are taught by faculty. So I do get them in those small groups. But the other thing is, like, I, you know, I'm interacting. Yeah, there's 108 in the classroom at once, but that's 27 groups of four. And so I'm interacting with these small groups and I get to see them think and, and work through these problems. And then they graduate and I get these letters back from them and they'll say stuff like, oh, wow, you know, Dr. Brown, I got to medical school and we had histology in our M1 year and everybody is struggling and I'm just skating through because I already know all this stuff. Thanks. You know, and we all get those occasionally, yeah. but I feel like the, the letters I get because of the close interaction I get to have with the students and the close interactions they get to have with each other, you know, are just great. Like I have um, a pair of, I have several pairs of students who met because they were in the same Pogel group or I put them in the same small group in lab and, you know, they've been, maids of honor, matrons of honor at each other's weddings or, you know, uh, form these lifelong friendships. I haven't had a Pogel romance that's resulted in a marriage yet, but the ability that we have to foster relationship building is another thing that, uh, that you don't get when you just stand up there and talk the whole time. Um, and then finally, the other thing that I love is that because I have engaged with the Pogel project and I'm so into it that now I get to teach other people how to do it. I facilitated Pogo workshops, um, well, from Minnesota all the way down to Georgia and lots of places in between. I went to West Virginia last year and facilitated a workshop for high school teachers. Um, you know, that being able to teach the teachers is, is something that I probably wouldn't be doing as much. I was recently named a faculty fellow at my institution center for teaching excellence. And were it not for my involvement with Pogel and the scholarship that came out of that, I probably would not have been in this position where now I get to work with some very, very talented colleagues. And I've come from as an educator, I can, I can go back and link to that three hour workshop at Guilford. So you use other strategies in addition to Pogel, uh, case-based learning. That was something that I, I know very little to nothing about. Can you describe what that means and how you use that technique? Sure. So um, case-based learning means that the student, it's, it's still a very constructivist way of, of learning. It's just that uh, the, the kind of the linchpin around which the learning happens is a case study of some kind. And one of the classes I got handed when I came to East Tennessee State was a 4,000 level clinical parasitology class. And I know about parasites because I studied protozoa and algae when I was in graduate school. And so I, I, at least the, paras the protozoan parasites I was familiar with, but they cause disease. And one of the way that physicians are taught um, and other healthcare practitioners are taught is from the standpoint of a single patient. Like what can we learn about this disease from someone who has this disease? So I took the lessons I learned from Pogel about guided inquiry 
And because um, so, traditionally case study teaching, like if you go to the National Center for Case Study Teaching and Science up at the University of Buffalo, they often approach it as kind of a discussion based. So you start with the case and the instructor facilitates a discussion, but it's still very constructivist. The idea is you're leading the students to this construction of knowledge. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not very familiar with facilitating discussions. I'm not all that great at it. I have a book right above my shoulder here, so I'm trying to learn more about it. But um, I, what I was familiar with and good at at that point was guided inquiry. So I started with a case. So we would have, um, you know, a picture of somebody and a description of essentially a case presentation. Here's, here's what you know about this person. I would give lab results and things like that. And then I would ask the students like, okay, out, underline all the significant signs and symptoms. Is there anything in this person's travel history that stands out at you? So I'd ask them these kinds of questions that somebody who's a professional would ask themselves in their head, right? That I would, I would help scaffold that, that thought process. Um, so it's similar. The way I use case-based learning is very similar to, to Pogel in that it's, it's guided inquiry. So I scaffold the questioning, but I do it on paper instead of doing it um, as a discussion, which is how a lot of people used, used case-based learning. But the idea is that we learn pretty much what we need to know about this disease by exploring a case study of somebody with a particular disease. Um, and I'll, I'll integrate cases into my intro A&P classes. So we, we don't do Pogel every single day. Um, and on days where we're not doing Pogel, a lot of times we'll do these case studies. So I'll say, okay, um, like when we're learning about blood, I'll say, all right, here's somebody who has found deceased in their apartment. There was significant lividity in the posterior thighs, back, buttocks. Here's, here's some information about their blood. Explain what happened to this person. And when the students get to exploring and they look and they see that the platelet count in this person was really low and they eventually get to, oh, this person had some sort of internal bleeding and they bled out and the blood is all pooled down and that's why you know they have this lividity and etc so so the idea is that by exploration of a case study in my case it's almost always a disease um, the students are going to be they're they're still going to be engaged in a lot of those information processing and critical thinking and problem solving tasks that i want them to do it's just a different approach to to getting at the same result oh. That sounds interesting. I know for years we we talked about rewriting our general chemistry course from the point of view of military applications, naval applications, and not introducing chemistry as a distinct kind of uh, subject and then pulling the applications in, but start with the application work from there. So uh, we talked a lot about it. We never really implemented that. I think in small parts we did, but that sounds, uh, sounds like an incredibly interesting way to approach things. So I got a couple more questions if you got the time, Patrick. Sure thing. Okay, fantastic. So, so the, we were talking earlier, I think we, we met around 2016. That would have been my first PNM. But in 2017, you were a recipient at PNM of the Peach Award, right? Mm -hmm. Have I got my years right? Yeah. So what did that mean to you? I am still kind of floored. Like, well, I've I mean, I've only been to my office once in the last five months. Uh, but when I'm 
in my office and I look over and I see that on the bookshelf, I'm still just, just a little bit flabbergasted uh, that that happened. And it's because, you know, I mentioned before of the mentorship I've received. Um, I left out Megan Hoffman's name earlier and that's a terrible error because Megan is the one who actually nominated me for that award. And she and these other people who I look up to, who I see as my as my mentors are the ones who decided that I was worthy of that award and that's yeah it's 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 one thing to get an award from from your colleagues from you know your coworkers or whomever or from the students that's also it's very special and I wouldn't take anything away from that but when the people who've decided you know hey you've done something significant we're proud of you are the people who you've been looking up to for for many years and who you look to for answers when you're struggling when they decide that hey you know you you've done good work that is just that's really 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 special i can i can imagine but i have one last question for you if you had to pick one thing and only one thing that you've learned about teaching to share with other educators what would that be <laughs> i would say if I had to share something with other educators, it would be to sell it. I mentioned that moment where I asked that student, have you ever, has anybody ever told you what critical thinking is? And she said, no. And I said, you're doing it. You're doing it right now. Every time you see your students and, and you get to do this with student-centered teaching, every time you see your students doing these hard things that we want our students to be able to do, point it out and celebrate it let them know they're doing something that's really hard and they're doing it and they're doing it well um you know i think we i don't want to say sell ourselves short but we don't always do a good job of celebrating those little moments where learning happens and our students deserve to know that they're getting it, that they're doing it right, that they're, you know, they're, they're progressing toward mastery. And if I'm going to, if you're going to use any kind of student centered learning, you're going to be able to see these aha moments happen in your students. And when you see it, stop and celebrate it. Let the students know, because what you'll find out is that's going to increase engagement. They see how excited you are. They're going to be more excited. And the students who, have, especially if it's somebody who's kind of struggled, I just, I couldn't tell you, you know, the number of high fives I've, I've given and received from students because learning, not, not just the bottom part of Blooms, but the whole pyramid, learning is celebrated in my classroom. And I just think that creates such a wonderful environment. And so if I had to give one piece of advice to other educators, it is make the students at the center of learning. And when they learn, celebrate it, sell it to them that learning is valuable and that they can do it um, because they can. Some just need more help and more structure than others. But if we do our jobs well and the students come and they do their job, um, you know, great things happen. And when those great things happen, um, it should be a cause for celebration. Well, Patrick, I really want to thank you so much for sharing this time uh, with us, uh, talking about a number of things and particularly about Pogle. At some point along the line, we have to get back together and have a longer discussion about music. Sure thing. Take care. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really okay. appreciate it. Thanks again. Thanks to the whole Pogle community. Like I said, I wouldn't be where I am without them. 
thank you very much to all of you for listening to today's conversation on the Pogel Podcast. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Pogel practitioner Wayne Pearson. Please join us next time as we think out loud with Pogel educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century.